We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of people. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. Is the story of Jesus' birth, the Christmas story, and then his subsequent life, death, and resurrection, merely the stuff of legend that was made up hundreds of years after the life of Christ by those who wanted to create a new religion? Or are these historical facts that were claimed by the followers of Jesus Christ within days after the actual events. I'll cover this and more on today's Rebellion. Good morning and welcome to the Rebellion. Okay, the topic for today's show is again the Christmas story. I talked about it yesterday and I made a lot of claims. I went back to scripture to talk about how who Jesus is. I used the hymn, What Child Is This? as the context for yesterday's show. Because really that's the question of the ages, isn't it? For over 2,000 years, we've been asking that question. What child is this? Who is the babe born in a manger? Is this story true? And if you conclude that it is true, then it has great consequences in your life. If you conclude that it isn't true, then Christianity is merely another fable. Another story of King Arthur, the Knights of the Round Table, of Robin Hood, of Sir Galahad, maybe. Maybe even Beowulf of old. You know, another hero, mankind's need to find stories that are inspiring even though they aren't true. You know, we always need to find another hero. Is that all that's behind this story of the Messiah born in a manger in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago? Or is this stuff true? Well, one of the ways to answer that question is, How long did it take for these stories to germinate after the actual events? You know, many people today will argue that, well, this stuff wasn't made up until the Council of Nicaea in 325, and Constantine was behind it because he wanted to politicize the whole Christian movement to his advantage so that he could could control the Roman population, unify them around one religion, rather than having the fragmentation of the polytheism of the days of old. There are people who make that claim. There are others that claim that this is just the opiate of the masses, you know, Marx, etc. That people need something to believe in. They need a sedative to soothe their fears. And religion is that sedative. These are some of the claims that we hear with regard to Christianity. Then we hear that, well, you know that the early, we have no evidence that the early believers actually believed This stuff was made up by subsequent followers some 150, 200, 300 years after the fact, you know, back to the Constantine claim. But they double down on that and pretend or make the claim that there's just no historical evidence whatsoever that those claims in the creeds are actually what the early followers actually believed. We've constructed our own Christianity politically, says Bart Ehrman and others. Well, is this stuff true? One of the ways to answer it is to go back to to the creeds themselves. How old are they? 
Were they constructed hundreds of years after the fact for political purposes? A newly constructed and contrived religion that made people feel good but was based in nothing but fable and fantasy? Or did the first followers within days, you know, start proclaiming these truths and did they give their lives for this truths, these truths? If you can go back to those days and identify when the first people who identified as Christians started making these claims, then it might give us a better handle on the veracity and the historicity, the accuracy, the factual nature, or lack thereof, of these miraculous stories, these inspiring stories, the Christmas story, all of these things that we attribute to the Christian message. Can we actually identify when people actually grabbed a hold of these truths and said, here we stand, we can do no other? That's the nature of today's show. I'm Dr. Everett Piper. Let's take a break, and when I get back, we'll talk about how old are they and when did they become the very basis of what we now call Orthodox Christianity. I'll be right back in a couple of minutes. In 1978, George and Kate Tedford set out to protect Oklahoma businesses better. Today, their son and our CEO, Mark Tedford, is excited to carry on his family's legacy. Professional liability, compliance, property, workers' comp, health and life. Tedford Insurance's dedicated team gives you access to the nation's largest insurance providers, negotiates the best rates, and protects their own legacy like no one else. Call 918-299-2345 or tedfordinsurance.com. The Patriot Auto Group, locally owned and operated. The Patriot family of dealerships takes great pride in supporting the communities we serve throughout the great state of Oklahoma. The Patriot Auto Group's charitable work has been recognized throughout Oklahoma. Whether it's visiting one of our local dealerships or simply shopping and buying online with our doorstep delivery, the Patriot Auto Group takes the stress out of buying a new or used vehicle. And every purchase comes with our exclusive peace of mind, Patriot Pledge. You get engines for life, plus one-year maintenance and 10 full years of roadside assistance, plus so much more. Sure, we can sell you a car, but supporting our community and lending a hand to our neighbors in need? Sold. The Patriot Auto Group. Proud Oklahomans in the communities we serve. Okay, welcome back to the rebellion. Uh, let's start with the Apostles' Creed. Okay, the question is this. Is the story of Christmas true? Or is it a fable? Is it just a fabrication, a fan fantasy, a fairy tale? Is it something that makes us feel good, like stories of King Arthur or Beowulf? Or is this actual history? Now, the answer to that question is huge, right? We, we, we probably want to know. If this stuff was only made up 300 years, 400 years, or whatever, after the fact, and it has no bearing whatsoever in the claims that people made immediately after the events, then we should acknowledge that and admit it. But if the answer is otherwise, I would argue that we likewise should acknowledge it and admit it and base our decisions, our beliefs, our claims, and maybe even our lives on the answer. So let's go back to the Apostles' Creed. Now, many will say that's one of the earliest, if not the earliest, Christian creed. It says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, 
And listen to this, because today the topic is Christmas, the birth of Jesus, who Jesus is, what child is this, what does the Apostles' Creed say about Jesus? Well, here's the exact quote. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell, and on the third day he rose again, and he ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Okay, and then it goes on and says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Very simple, very brief. That's the Apostles' Creed. Now, I want to go back and I want to read the part about Jesus one more time, because again, today's topic is about Jesus, the birth of Christ, the Christmas story. Is it historically true and accurate, or is it merely something that's been made up? The Apostles' Creed says this about Jesus. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Right, so what are these claims about Christ? Number one, that he existed. I believe in Jesus Christ. Number two, that he is God's only Son, the only begotten Son of God, and that he is our Lord. Lord is synonymous with God the highest title that you can give. That he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So this is a reference to the Christmas story. He was born in Bethlehem of a virgin named Mary. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, not by any relationship that she had with a man. The virgin birth. It's a historical fact that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate and that He was crucified on a cross, and then he died. He was actually dead. He was buried, and he descended into hell, and on the third day he rose again. He's in heaven now, and he's seated on the right hand of the Father, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. Okay, so that's the Apostles' Creed. What's the Nicene Creed say? Let's go to the part about Jesus. I don't mean to belittle the other portions, but I have limited time on today's show. Okay, see, they say that uh, it starts out by saying we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, One in being with the Father, through him all things were made. This is the claim that the Nicene Creed makes about Jesus. So the Apostles' Creed says that Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and buried. He descended into hell, and on the third day he rose again and ascended into heaven, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. The Nicene Creed, as I said, says that Jesus Christ is the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father, through him all things were made. These are pretty explicit claims about Jesus Christ. This doesn't sound like a fairy tale, does it? 
It sounds like a declaration. This is who Jesus is, right? Well, what does the Athanasian Creed say? Now, it's written later, not earlier, but I want you to bear with me now. We've got the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and now we have the Athanasian Creed. And I don't have time to read the whole thing because it's quite a bit longer than the other two. And the reason for that is it is now doubling down on the Trinity, the triune God, the fact that there is one God in Trinity. That's the language from the Athanasian Creed. For there is one person of the Father, and another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one, co-eternal, Father incomprehensible, Son incomprehensible, and Holy Ghost incomprehensible. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Ghost eternal. But one Almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Ghost is God. Okay, there are not three gods, but there's one God, one Godhead. And that Trinity, that triune God, is Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. So very clear in all of these creeds that Jesus Christ is divine. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is God. And that the story of Bethlehem, of Christmas, of the babe born in the manger, the answer to the question as to who is this child, what child is this, The answer to the question is that this is Emmanuel, God with us. As I said in yesterday's show, this is the story of the Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God, the Word made flesh and dwelling among us, the beginning and the end, the great I Am, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, my Savior and my God. This is the story of all of these biblical claims. But were these ideas? Were these beliefs constructed later on, hundreds of years after the actual life of Jesus? Is the stuff you're hearing from liberal scholars like Barterman and others about this not really being what the Christian church has told you it is? Because the early Christians, well, we don't even know what they thought. We don't know what they believed. All we know is what people started saying, oh, around 325 A.D., and even after that, the Nicene Creed under Constantine and then the Athanasian Creed, where the Catholic Church started booting out all the people that disagreed with them and rallying around their own little exclusive group and these new ideas about the Christian faith. What do we believe? Well, let's go back and ask the question, was there anything in the Bible, is there anything in the Bible that indicates that there were creeds before the Apostles' Creed, before the Nicene Creed, and before the Athanasian Creed? What did Paul say? What did Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say? And when are those books dated? Are there references to creeds in their writings? And the answer is yes. In his book, A Case for Christmas, subtitled A Journalist Investigates the Identity of the Child in the Manger, by Lee Strobel. He says this. So basically, this entire book is about the hymn, the Christmas carol, What Child Is This? Lee Strobel is answering that question in his book, The Case for Christmas. Again, subtitled, A Journalist Investigates the Identity of the Child in the Manger. Lee Strobel's the author. Lee Strobel, by the way, was an atheist, worked for the 
Chicago Tribune or the Chicago Sun-Times, I can't remember which, but one of those two major newspapers. He was a journalist for them, an atheist. His wife converted to Christianity, and he therefore thought he needed to look in it more deep, into it more deeply because he always considered it to be just made-up nonsense. You know, all this stuff of miracles and whatnot. We know that can't happen. Virgins can't get pregnant and give birth to children, and men can't walk on water, and we surely know that nobody rises from the dead. So all of these fables of Christianity, they may make us feel good, they may have an interesting meaning or a moral behind the story, but they're not historically true. That's where Lee Strobel was, but now he's a committed believer in Jesus Christ. The reality of the gospel message of the story of Christmas. In this book, The Case for Christmas, Lee Strobel says this, How early can we date the fundamental beliefs in Jesus' atonement, his resurrection, and his unique association with God? Another way to say that, when did people start calling him God? Um, The Gospels, he goes on and says, were written, well, after all, um, sometime after even the letters of Paul. Some people will say that the first Gospel was written in maybe 70 AD, and that would be Mark's Gospel. There's reason to believe that it was written perhaps even earlier in the 50s. I won't get into that right now, but the earliest account of Jesus being a historical person, the Son of God, our Savior and our Lord, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, you know, the lens through which we look at all of life and the Lord of our daily lives. The the earliest account we have of that is the Gospel of Mark, and it was written sometime between 50 A.D. and 70 A.D. Even liberal scholars would admit that. The other Gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John, likely followed on the heels of Mark. And they were written between, let's say, 50, 60 A.D. up to 90 A.D. So what does that mean? If Jesus was crucified in 30 A.D. or thereabout, then the earliest dating of Mark would be 20 years after that. Well, can you trust somebody or something that was written 20 years after the actual facts. I would argue you could. I mean, I talk about a lot of things that took place at Oklahoma Wesleyan University when? 20 years ago when I was hired. I remember them very well, and what I tell you about that, you can take to the bank. That's true. And if you don't think it's true, you can go check with other people that are still alive and around and were part of that turnaround story at Oklahoma Wesleyan, and they can either agree and confirm it, or they can disagree and deny it. And then you'll have to do your own investigative work as to decide and in deciding who's right and who's wrong. But the point of it, of me saying it that way is that it's not that long ago. You can easily go figure out, you know, what the financial situation was of Oklahoma Wesleyan University. Uh, was it on the verge of bankruptcy? Uh, what were the numbers then? What were the numbers when we left? All of that kind of stuff. What was the mission statement when I was hired? What was the mission statement uh, when I left? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of those claims can be checked. And you could do the same with Mark's account of Jesus. Especially the people that were alive at the time he wrote it could have done the same. Okay, so he wrote it at a time where critics could have said, no, that's not true. You don't have any evidence of that taking place. That's interesting, isn't it? Okay, but is that the earliest account? Well, no. Well, why do we know that? Well, because the epistles of Paul, everybody, liberal scholars included, were written before the Gospels. 
Some scholars would date Paul's writings to the late 40s, for example. And you know this because of the things he references and doesn't reference with regard to the Roman government at the time. So it's simply a fact that Paul's letters, Corinthians, Ephesians, Galatians, Colossians, etc., 1 and 2 Timothy, Paul's epistles, Paul's letters to the early church were written before the Gospels were written. That's very interesting. Now, why is it important? Because Paul, who wrote before the Gospel writers, incorporated some creedal statements, some confessions of the faith into his instructions to those early Christians. Here's a quote from Strobel's book. The most famous creeds include Philippians 2, 6 through 11, which talks about Jesus being in the very nature God. Okay, so there's a creedal statement in Philippians 2, 6 through 11, where Jesus is defined as being in the very nature God. That's not just a claim. The structure of the sentence, the structure of the way Paul's writing and delivering that demonstrates that it was a creed held by the Christians at that time, that Jesus was in the very nature God. And then in the book of Colossians, his letter, his letter to the church of Colossia, Paul says this, he describes Jesus as being the image of the invisible God who created all things and through whom all things are reconciled with God making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So that's the statement that Paul makes to the, in the epistle of the Colossians to the Colossian church. So you've got those creedal statements very early on in, let's just say, 40 AD. Well, again, now we're down to 10 years after the events where these creedal statements of Jesus being God, being in the very nature God, being the creator of all things, being clear in the teachings that Paul is giving to the church. And then there's another one. Some would say it's the most important creed in terms of the historical Jesus, and it's in 1 Corinthians 13, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 13. This is where Paul uses the technical language to indicate he was passing along this oral tradition in a relatively fixed form. I'm reading from the book right now. And then Strobel goes on to actually cite that passage, and I want you to listen to this. 1 Corinthians 15. It says this, for what I received, this is Paul talking, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Number one, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared appeared to James, and then all the other apostles. Okay? So what's the point here? This is a creedal statement that Paul said was passed on to him and is of first importance. When did Paul get that? He got that right after his conversion on the road to Damascus. How do we know this? Paul went on to Damascus, and he met with a Christian named Ananias and some other disciples there. And that's where he got his instructions, his teachings in the faith. When did this happen? Well, it happened before he returned to Jerusalem to start preaching and teaching in A.D. 35. What are we talking about right now? 
Paul was given this creed that he's referring to in 1 Corinthians probably between 30 AD and AD 35. He already had that creed. He was already using it because it was already being used in the first church. So the key facts about Jesus' death, his deity, his sacrifice for our sins, and his resurrection are being made very clear within years, if not days, after Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. And this would be within perhaps two years after the actual events that we're talking about right now, the life of Christ. I'm going to read that first church creed to you again. A creed that Paul makes sure was passed on to him. He didn't make it up. It was given to him by who? Likely the believers in Damascus, like Ananias and the other disciples, who started giving Paul the necessary basics of the Christian faith, teaching him, teaching him what the gospel was all about. For I, excuse me, for what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers. He got 500 people, and then he says, and many of them are still alive. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. So he rattles off this list of people that confirm, that can confirm what he's saying as being true. The Christian belief in the resurrection can be dated to within two years of that very event. And as Strobel says in his book, that is enormously significant. And then he says this, you're not comparing 30 to 60 years after the event with the 500 years that is generally accepted for other historical reporting, such as Alexander the Great's biography, is 400 to 500 years after the events, and people accept that as factual, but yet the same scholars will turn around and start questioning the Gospels because we can only date them to 40, 50, 60, 70 years after the event. That should be enough, but we don't have to accept that because we can go back and say, well, the Gospels were written around 40 to 50, if you want to go back to Mark as the first one, there are actual creedal references in Paul's writings, which were written before Mark. We know that to be a fact because of the historical references to Rome and whatnot. We also know that Acts was likely written before the Gospels because it was written by Luke, who was a partner of Paul's, and we also know that Paul himself in his epistles, which were written before Mark, references the early creeds. And those early creeds, where did he get them? Well, Paul himself is saying he got them in his first instructions when he went to Damascus from Ananias and others who gave him this creed that says Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised. He appeared to Peter and the twelve, and he appeared to more than 500 other brothers, many of whom are still living. And then he appeared to James and then the other apostles. This claim that this man, Jesus Christ, was real, that he actually lived, the Christmas story is true, these creeds that Paul references in Colossians and Philippians, as well as in his epistle to the Corinthians, 
are ancient creeds that precede the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, and the Athanasians' Creed. All of these creeds are making one thing and one thing very clear. The Christmas story is true. This child is the King of Kings, the Prince of Peace, the Lord of Lords, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God. He died, he was risen, and he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. He sits on the right hand of God. He is God. He is part of the triune Godhead. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, Jesus Christ our Lord. As the apostle, the doubting Thomas said, when he was confronted with the reality of this story, even though he doubted it until he actually saw Jesus standing before him and recognized that his doubts were unjustified. And in humiliation and embarrassment, he cried out, my Lord and my God. Now we're told that blessed are those who believe because we've seen, and blessed are those who believe even though they have not seen. Well, all of us today obviously have not seen, but we're blessed because we've been left a track record, a a historical record of the veracity of this truth, the veracity of the Christmas story, and that the child in the manger is real. He lived, he died, He rose again, and he's coming back to judge us at the end of days. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion.